Prestige listeners, it's Derek. Uh, I'm joined, as always, by my friend. I got I got scolded last time. I didn't call him my friend, Danny Bessner, uh, co-host. I still don't uh, believe it, but uh, it's well, okay. Well, you know, doing I was it in, in the moment, and I was I was just uh, I was flustered. What can I say? Uh, we're very pleased to be joined uh, by Leila Al Ariana, Washington D.C.-based journalist and documentary filmmaker. She is the executive producer of Fault Lines, a documentary series on Al Jazeera English. Layla, first of all, thank you so much for coming on the program. Thank you for having me. So I want to talk about how we got here. (laughs) Basically, I want to talk about uh, where American politics are now and how we got to this place. I think uh, America institutionally has the memory of a a gnat, basically. And and so uh, when people saw Donald Trump, for example, in 2016 emerge and, and, uh, you know, start saying horrible things about migrants or calling for total bans on Muslims coming into the United States, there was this sense of like, where did this come from? How could this possibly have happened? As though the previous, you know, let's say, 15 to 20 years had not happened. Uh, I think you're in a, a, a very good position to talk about this uh, because your family experienced uh, a lot of the roots of, of this stuff, uh, you know, after 9-11, but also kind of before 9-11 in, in the story of your, your father, Samuel Arian. So I thought maybe we could start there uh, with your story, his story. Can you kind of uh, talk to people, you know, talk, talk people through what happened? If you want to know about cancel culture or um, <laughs> fake news, ask a Palestinian American or a Muslim American, because we've known those terms implicitly well before they became widely known. Um, my father's story actually starts about 10 years before he was even born. Um, so in 1948, the year that Israel was established, uh, which resulted in the expulsion of, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians from their homes, including his parents. So his parents were expelled from Jaffa. He was born in Kuwait. um, And at the age of eight, his family was expelled from Kuwait, and he ended up growing up in Egypt. And why I'm telling you all this is because my father actually ended up becoming one of the first uh, American Muslim leaders targeted and arrested after 9-11. But his story actually began by just being Palestinian. And He grew up in Egypt, um, and when he was 17, Anwar Sadat came to power and actually decided that Palestinians were going to be restricted in what they'd be able to study. So imagine he'd been like a bookworm his whole life. He'd been really studious, and then he's told, you can't study whatever you want to study. So at that point, his father told him, look, I have my life savings, and I'm happy to help support you in studying wherever you want to study, whether it's the U.S. or the U.K., wherever you get into, into college. And that's how he ended up in the U.S. He really came to the U.S. Uh, because he was really drawn to the idea of a free society, having grown up in Egypt, of a place where he can express himself, he can further his education, he can really build a life. And part of that life involved being a passionate advocate for Palestinian human rights. So he went on to get his PhD in computer engineering. He became a professor 
But he never forgot the Palestinian people who were under occupation. And he spent many years advocating for them and really trying to open up uh, the conversation when it came to Palestine and Palestinian human rights. He was also really active sort of in the post-Cold War era when, you know, people like um, Samuel Huntington were talking about a clash of civilizations and he very much rejected that. And he wanted to, again, to kind of push back on that and uh, push back on the framing that Muslims are sort of the new enemy. And, and he was also against both Iraq wars as well. So he was very um, active and, and passionate about um, opposing sort of U.S. imperialism. And uh, because of that, but especially because of his advocacy on behalf of Palestinians, he made uh, very prominent enemies, many of them part of sort of the Israel lobby. There was a self-styled terrorism expert named Stephen Emerson who made a quote-unquote documentary, which was a hit piece called Jihad in America in 1994 um, that came out on PBS that basically smeared my father as a terrorist and other American Muslim leaders and made this really... um, (laughs) you know, sensationalistic and, and like I said, it was a hit piece uh, argument that Muslims in the U.S. were this threat, were this enemy. But really what he wanted to do was shut down and silence prominent uh, Palestinian advocates. Samuel Arian's organization, according to law enforcement, serves as the primary support group in the United States for Islamic Jihad. ICP promotes Islamic Jihad in both the U.S. and the Middle East. Samuel Arian denies any connection between the Islamic Committee for Palestine and Islamic Jihad. Would you say that you support the Islamic Jihad factions? No, we don't support any political groups at all. After that, our home was actually raided by the FBI. And, you know, many of my sort of childhood report cards and drawings and, you know, they really took everything indiscriminately. And we were also subject to intense surveillance, decades long surveillance. So later on in my father's trial, the U.S. government would submit 20,000 hours of phone calls that they had recorded over the years. And it wasn't just my father. It was us children. (laughs) So it's not like they would start and stop the recording. They were recording everything. Layla, Um, just a question. Uh, In the trial, what was the justification used for this sort of surveillance, which foreshadows what happens to everyone in this country in the next decade? How did the government justify basically permanent surveillance? They were not in a position where anyone was asking them to justify it in the environment, post 9-11 environment of fear and hysteria. They were allowed to enter in everything. So the quote-unquote evidence they had against my father. So he was arrested on February 20th, 2003. So it will be almost 20 years of his arrest. And um, he, you know, in his six-month-long trial that began in June of 2005, what was the actual evidence they entered, (laughs) they gave the jury? It was lectures he gave, magazines he published, books he read, you know, speeches he gave at rallies, um, all First Amendment protected activities. And in the in this trial, they also flew in dozens of witnesses from Israel who talked about incidents my father, that even the U.S. government said he had no connection to um, acts. But they did that to sort of inflame the jury, to emotionally manipulate them. And again, they submitted uh, thousands of hours of phone calls. They even submitted websites, none of the defendants. So I should mention my father and three other men were arrested. 
And it was uh, the government used RICO laws, so laws that they generally use to go after the mafia uh, to try them. And what that means is if you have four defendants, uh, if you're one of the defendants, you're liable for what your co-defendant says or does as well. So it's a conspiracy case. And it actually lowers, I, th- I think, the threshold for the government to prove their case. In one instance, one particularly glaring instance, the government actually brought in a dream that one of my father's co-defendants had. So just to show you the absurdity, there were a lot of mistranslations from Arabic. Uh, so for instance, in, a fo- in one of these phone calls I mentioned, uh, one of the co-defendants said he had he was dreaming of pan- pancakes and they changed it to he was dreaming of brigades. So these are just one of the very absurd moments in this uh, six-month-long trial that the government spent millions of dollars on. What was it that that kind of brought things to the point of a trial that kind of put your father on the the prosecutor's radar? I know your your uncle had uh, a legal case against him that, uh, again, this kind of in kind of a very Kafka-esque way was based on secret evidence that apparently nobody was allowed to hear, but he had to be kept in uh, in custody anyway. Uh, and and I know your dad was involved in in that. Is that really where? And of course, there was the the Bill O'Reilly interview. I don't know if you want to talk about that. People have probably forgotten who Bill O'Reilly is too. But Tucker Carlson, but taller, I think, is uh, maybe the way to to go with that. But you know what 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 were the events that kind of preceded this this you know winding up in legal jeopardy? As I mentioned, I mean, there was a sort of decade-long campaign by this um, pro-Israel uh, figure, Stephen Emerson. He enlisted a local journalist by the name of Michael Fector, who wrote for the right-wing newspaper, the Tampa Tribune. He, for seven straight years, he wrote hundreds of articles about my father. And, um, you know, he, even after, to the point of before Timothy McVeigh and his co-defendant were arrested for the Oklahoma City bombing, this local reporter, Michael Fector, tried to pin it on my father and other Palestinians. Stephen Emerson uh, went on CBS News uh, claiming that it, Palestinians had their fingerprints or Middle Eastern terrorists had their fingerprints all over the Oklahoma City bombing. This was a sustained media campaign that went on for years. And just to, to give you a sense of the central role of the media in my father's prosecution, uh, my father was denied citizenship. He was a permanent resident. Um, you know, all of his five children were born in the United States. When he filed a Freedom of Information Act to figure out why he was uh, not made a U.S. citizen, he received a file back. When he opened the file, it was articles from this right-wing newspaper, the Tampa Tribune. Um, and fast forward many years, this local newspaper reporter, Michael Fector, ends up working for Stephen Emerson, this self-styled terrorism expert. So we knew that they were sort of working together all along, but he eventually formally goes on to work with him. But uh, what really came to a head was, as I mentioned, so the, the FBI raids our home, and then my uncle is arrested um, in the in the late 90s. He's uh, immediately taken to the FBI office, and he's told, look, we'll give you anything you want. We'll give you citizenship, a job, money, whatever you want, if, if you testify against your brother-in-law, my father. And, and that's often a lie, by the way. I know people who got promises like that, and nothing ever happened. So just wanted to point that out. It's not like they're doing that in good faith by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> exactly. So my uncle said, you know, I have nothing to give you. And he then, you know, he had overstayed his student visa, but really what happened was um, the government was able to use secret evidence, as you mentioned, Derek, um, against him. And 
Uh, what that meant was neither he nor his lawyers were told what it is that the government was alleging. They weren't told the allegation. As we mentioned at the time, it was like fighting ghosts. So, um, and this was a provision in the 1996 Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, a piece of legislation that was passed in the wake of the Oklahoma City bombing that allowed the government to use this very unconstitutional tactic. So my father then starts this really successful kind of nationwide campaign to end the use of secret evidence. He actually gets a bipartisan bill sponsored in Congress and, you know, which is a really successful effort. He gets, you know, a, there's a big movement, a lot of different newspapers publish editorials condemning the use of secret evidence because it is so unconstitutional. And there were about 20 people that this was used against, uh, immigrants. And I think all but two of them were Muslims. So this was a tactic really used against uh, Muslims in the U.S. Um, as this movement is sort of becoming successful and gaining steam, um, this, by the way, let's remember, this is all during the Clinton administration. So, uh, right. I this to- is pre-Patriot Act. It's pre-military tribunal. All this stuff is happening before any of that comes into play. Exactly. Um, this actually becomes an issue in the 2000 presidential election. So it's a really tight race. And Muslims happen to be in a lot of the different swing states, including Florida, where my father was. And, um, you know, this is something that's really bothering the Muslim community, because as I mentioned, it had a disproportionate impact on Muslims in Florida. So the different national Muslim organizations come together and they decide, look, we're going to reach out to both campaigns about pledging to end the use of secret evidence. And uh, whoever is kind of more responsive will get our endorsement. I should mention that the black Muslim community wasn't really on board because they really mistrusted Republicans. So there was a bit of division in the Muslim community around that. So the Gore administration is kind of dismissive and not really responsive. Meanwhile, the, the Gore campaign, rather. The Bush campaign is interested. They're intrigued. They know how important um, in sort of uh, the Muslim vote is in these swing states. So in the second presidential debate live on television, the candidates are asked about racial profiling. And George W. Bush goes out of his way to say, by the way, there's another kind of profiling. It's called secret evidence. And if I'm elected, I'm going to end the use of secret evidence. Secondly, there is other forms of uh, racial profiling that goes on in America. Arab Americans are racially profiled in what's called secret evidence. People are stopped. Uh, And uh, we got to do something about that. My friend Senator Spencer Abraham of Michigan is pushing a law to make sure that Arab Americans are treated with respect. This is a huge moment. The Muslims are happy. (laughs) They decide to endorse George W. Bush. Um, Again, the Gore campaign was sort of uh, not interested and not really responsive. And uh, they endorse him. They decide to do this block vote. Uh, They end up delivering more than the 537 votes needed in Florida. And the Bush administration schedules a meeting with the Muslim community, Muslim leaders, to talk about ending the use of secret evidence once he's elected. That meeting was scheduled for 3 p.m. on September 11th, 2001. So needless to say, that meeting never happened. The Bush administration goes on to go after uh, American Muslims in a really vicious and uh, disproportionate and uh, wide-ranging way. And we went from secret evidence to no evidence. 
Okay, but did have you considered that George Bush gave Michelle Obama a piece of candy that one time? And he's a good guy. Honestly, you know? Layla, it doesn't sound yeah, like you've considered like that. You're not being very open-minded here. Um, yeah. The- uh, <laughs> it is so wild. The I listen, I know we live in this society. I know we shouldn't be surprised, but the the memory holding and rehabilitation of George W. Bush is one of the most abhorrent and ignominious things I've seen in my young sweet life. It is wild that that has happened, and people who try to rehabilitate him should be ashamed. I agree. I mean, my family is just one casualty. There have been so many you know, American Muslim leaders, organizations, institutions, families that have been destroyed uh, by these post 9-11 policies. And to say nothing, of course, of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan um, and all of the civilian casualties involved, the rendition, the torture, Guantanamo. I mean, we can go on and on. And the rehabilitation is, like you said, people have the memory of a gnat. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's really disturbing to me. And none of these people have ever been held accountable for all these abuses. But, you know, it's not just my family, it's others. Um, in December of 2001, the Bush administration shut down the largest uh, American Muslim charity in the U.S., the Holy Land Foundation for Relief and Development, which worked all over the world, but they were targeted for their work uh, for Palestinians. And similar to my father's case, the government never alleged that they had any involvement in violence. Their argument was that money is fungible so because they gave charity to Palestinians, that freed up other money that could go towards violent acts. And the things that the U.S. government got away with in that case were just unprecedented. You had an Israeli Shin Bet agent testifying anonymously behind a curtain. Nobody knew his real name. Nobody knew his identity, you know, raising serious questions about the right to confront your accuser. And he was allowed to to tell jurors that he could, quote, unquote, smell Hamas. And that's how he knew that the defendants were part of Hamas. So and these, you know, after the first trial, the Holy Land Foundation, um, the five um, leaders, the five men who were involved with the organization were actually there was a, a, a hung jury. And then in the second trial, they were convicted and sentenced for up to 65 years for giving charity to Palestinians. You mentioned uh, cancel culture earlier, and I do want to talk about to get get away from the legal aspect of this the the ordeal that your your father went through at University of South Florida seems like it kind of presages some of the things that that uh, we're talking about today in terms of academic freedom, in terms of uh, you know should people what w- in terms of being canceled really? I mean, let's let's. Uh, talk about it. Can you can you give people a a sense of what happened there? Sure. Yeah. I mean, what happened there is so central to his case. So he was a professor of computer engineering. He was tenured. He, you know, won teaching awards. He was a really well-liked professor. But because of all this media coverage, and I should mention, you asked about Bill O'Reilly. So two weeks after 9-11, of course, my father condemned the attacks. He organized blood drives. You know, he was very active in the local Muslim community, um, the O'Reilly factor, this um, heinous, you know, Fox News host named Bill O'Reilly invites him on his show. And the producers actually lied to my father about what he was coming on about. And, you know, they used all sorts of unsavory tactics to bring him on. And then O'Reilly 
you know, starts bringing in old comments my father made out of context and ends the show by saying, Dr. Alarian, if I were the CIA, I'd follow you everywhere you went. And of course, uh, Fox News viewers uh, start sending in death threats to my father at the university and really um, at his home. And then the university, what is their response? Rather than defending their professor's right to speak <laughs> for, you know, defending the right of academic freedom, the principle of academic freedom, they decide to actually punish him for getting death threats and suspend him and later on choose to fire him without any kind of due process. And this becomes a sort of test case of academic freedom after 9-11. A lot of different professor organizations, um, the American Association of University Professors actually threatens to censure the university, which is a big deal because as a public university, it can lose funding if it's censured. Different, um, there's op-eds in the New York Times and the Washington Post, and there's a huge backlash to the university attempting to fire my father without any kind of cause. Layla, just a very quick question. So obviously today, the people against that sort of quote-unquote canceling have been on the right. Did anyone, any organizations on the right come to your father's defense or was it mostly on the, on the center left? Absolutely not. They so, were actually... Yeah, Barry Weiss didn't write in favor of your father? No, believe it or not, these right-wing yeah. groups have blind spots. Yeah, interesting. In fact, Maybe she just hadn't heard about it. Let's give her the Yeah, the that's guy. true. Actually, at the time, she was trying to get her Palestinian professors fired at, at Oh, I Columbia was at Columbia with her. So uh, yes. I'm very yeah, familiar Danny, with the Danny David Project. Or Project yeah. David. I had an inside an inside look. But no, that that's neither yeah. here nor there. But I just wanted to point out that there were no groups on the no. right that came to okay to the contrary actually the people who were trying to fire my father were political appointees uh, appointed to the university board of trustees system by jeb bush the president's brother and the republican governor of florida at the time so they were very much um you know on the political right so let's let's take the framing out a little bit wider when you uh, having had this experience you know as you say you know which were truly starting in the 90s before um you know the 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 glorious war on terror began what were your thoughts as you kind of saw in the immediate aftermath of the 2001 September 11th attacks uh the direction that the Bush administration was going what were your sort of uh reactions to that well, on a personal level, I was actually in Washington, D.C. I was a student at Georgetown on 9-11. I was actually on my way to my Middle East history class when uh, we heard what happened. Of course, class was canceled. I could see the smoke from the balcony of one of the dorms. So it very much um, immediately you know, hit home in the sense of I was here. I experienced it. My friends and I, who were visibly Muslim, didn't leave campus for weeks because we heard about many sort of incidents uh, happening against uh, visibly Muslim women. Uh, but in terms of the wider um, <laughs> experience, it was clear to me that the Bush administration was going to capitalize on the environment of fear and hysteria, uh, not only for the neocons to fulfill their long-held um, objective of taking over Iraq, of dividing the Middle East, of of cutting up Iraq into different territories, but also of shutting down dissent at home. So 
shutting down um, any criticism, uh, any dissent by Palestinians, shutting down the debate, especially with regard to that issue, but also disciplining American Muslims. So you see in, in the decade after American Muslims beginning to sort of discipline themselves, fall into line, there's this politics of respectability, uh, not uh, pushing back on empire. Um, you have programs like countering violent extremism started by uh, the Obama administration, which was sort of modeled after the Prevent program in the UK, which basically is a mass surveillance program. So it's telling communities to surveil themselves and to report back. Um, and it's a really racist program in the sense that it identifies things like um, the way people practice their faith as being suspicious enough to warrant um, reporting. So uh, it sort of correlates the way people practice their religion with whether they have a predilection to terrorism, which actually studies have shown is not accurate in any way. So right away, the Bush administration was taking advantage of the environment to enact, I believe, um, some of its goals that it previously had, but could take advantage of the environment to do so. What was your sense of the public reaction to all of this. It seems to me that uh, the U S public in the immediate wake of nine 11 would have done just about anything the government wanted. I mean, there was a, a strong uh, kind of fear based, I think response. Uh, but as time went on, do you, do you feel like people uh, woke up to the dangers of some of these things of mass surveillance of singling out, uh, entire populations as sort of threats, you know, internal threats, uh, or, you know, is that something that, that, uh, really never entered the consciousness in your, in your view? I'm heartened by the fact that there, you can see more skepticism now of the criminal legal system when it comes to false confessions, when it comes to things like, you know, the punitive, you know, solitary confinement and how it's akin to torture, um, the war on drugs. I don't believe that's extended to these post 9-11 national security cases. I believe that there's so much um, discrimination and bias against Muslims that you don't see as much skepticism. I think part of it is the media coverage. So when you do have a lot of these post 9-11 national security cases, uh, journalists essentially work as stenographers. Um, they basically repackage Department of Justice press releases and put in a few quotes, and that's your article. They're not questioning the tactics the government uses. They're not questioning the framing. They're not questioning the evidence. And that's generally how people get their news. So I think we still have a long way to go in terms of the public really having a reckoning around these issues. I don't even think the Snowden disclosures um, which let's not forget, I mean, the Snowden disclosures at the heart of them was the fact that the National Security Agency was actually particularly surveilling American Muslim leaders, whether it's um, academics or lawyers or uh, leaders of civil rights organizations. But I don't feel like that really had a lot of pushback or public outrage. Uh, and I think there just needs to be a lot more awareness of what the abuses that have taken place. There's an, uh, a former FBI agent, Terry Albury, who actually spent time in prison for disclosing some of the abuses by the FBI against the Muslim community, uh, who came out. There's a big New York Times magazine article about him that's really an essential read in which he said, we were taught that Islam is the enemy. 
in the FBI. And I don't believe that that story got nearly as much uh, coverage or provoked as much outrage as it should have. To continue on the FBI, I mean, one of the, the things that I think has been kind of grossly undercovered uh, by the media has been these cases where FBI agents essentially create a terrorist attack and then arrest the people that they rope in to participate in or create a plot uh, and entrap people into to participating in this plot and then arrest them. This seems to be a, a fairly prevalent tactic. It is, it strikes me as the definition of entrapment. And yet, um, as you say, there, there's not a lot of critical reporting about this stuff. I'm curious, I mean, you're, uh, you know, in a position to, to know a lot more about how often this kind of thing goes on and, and what's really happening. But maybe you could, you know, talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. Well, there are hundreds of these kinds of cases and families who've been torn apart because their loved ones oftentimes are quite vulnerable, whether, um, you know, they have mental health challenges or they're poor or whatever vulnerability. Um, that's who sort of the government and the FBI have preyed on. And, you know, they'll, uh, intellectual disabilities, even uh, one of the defendants was literally in adult diapers who they um, entrapped in the Massachusetts area. But um, what they do is, is, as you mentioned, I mean, they have these government informants, paid government informants, oftentimes with long rap sheets, and they're told, you know, come work for us, we'll forgive whatever <laughs> infractions you have. And uh, they end up going into these communities, surveilling them, and really starting to actually provide the plot themselves, um, you know, sort of really coercing these vulnerable people to agree with their plots, funding the plots, um, coming up with all the details. And then uh, the government, the FBI will say, we just foiled this plot. And it's really about justifying their very bloated post 9-11 budgets, because, you know, obviously their budgets uh, grew so much after the attacks and they needed to sort of justify their existence. And when they realized they didn't have sleeper cells to bust, they began creating their own plots to really justify it. And to also, I think in some ways, um, carry on this sort of fictitious idea that there's this ever-looming threat when that's not the case. So I've just got a quick question. How do you think that the, the wars that the United States fought abroad affected what was going on at home? I, I'm thinking of someone like Stuart Schrader in his book, Badges Without Borders, which focuses primarily on the 1960s, but, but does show how Vietnam shaped the militarization process of American domestic policing. What do you see the connections there being? Are there not actually connections? Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. It's a really good question. I definitely think there's connections in the sense of the demonization of of Islam and Muslims that made uh, Muslims abroad vulnerable to military exploitation and occupation, uh, made Muslims in the U.S. vulnerable to things like FBI entrapment, the shutting down of institutions and charities. Uh, it's also relevant in the sense of Muslims in the U.S. being too afraid to actually voice any opposition to these wars abroad because that would be seen as, as, as being a radical or an extremist. So you have sort of this, the disciplining of a community and the framing of good Muslim, bad Muslim, which, which sort of pervades uh, the framing of Muslims in general post 9-11. And um, 
you know, that's sort of the premise of these CVE programs I mentioned, which is if you're going to be that person who's outspoken about U.S. militarism, U.S. wars abroad, then you're going to be seen as uh, being more likely to be a terrorist than the other person. When in fact, what you do is you're shutting down healthy debate, you're shutting down uh, what it means to actually live in a free society. And I believe making it more likely that a person will seek this kind of discourse elsewhere rather than in their own communities. So you see mosques that um, post 9-11, uh, in addition to the mass surveillance of mosques, in addition to the thousands of informants all over the country infiltrating mosques and, and Islamic centers and communities, you see people self-censoring, so not allowing discussion on these issues. And I believe that's really stunted the growth of, of the Muslim community. I want to talk, uh, get your impressions of of the Obama administration, move us up a little bit chronologically. And there's a couple of things uh, we can talk about here. One of the through lines, I think, from the Patriot Act kind of, you know, mass surveillance hysteria about uh, Muslims to the current far right, alt right, uh, you know, whatever you want to call them, is birtherism. Um, I'd be curious your your kind of thoughts on that movement as a manifestation uh, with, you know, regards specifically to Barack Obama's person uh, of kind of fears about Islam and Muslims infiltrating the country. But also, uh, if we could talk about the, the way that the Obama administration conducted the war on terror, which to me seemed largely like a continuation uh, of the same policies. The criticism of the Bush administration wasn't that they'd done all that much wrong. It's just they'd done it in, you know, kind of to excess or in, in the wrong ways. We were going to make things a little more benign or pleasant or antiseptic, but fundamentally not that much seems to have changed. So I, I'm curious on both of these things, where, what your, your your views were. Absolutely. Are. Well, I do think birtherism um, and sort of the attacks against Obama that you can argue actually first originated with the Clinton camp um, when they, during that campaign, during the primary, when they um, circulated that picture of him wearing Kenyan clothes, um, that was actually the Clinton camp that did that before the Republicans seized on that in the general election, um, definitely played into fear of Muslims, you know, calling him Barack Hussein Obama. Um, the underlying premise was always, he's not one of us, he's a Muslim, you know. And I think it plays into f fears of Muslims, it plays into otherism. Uh, you see a continuing trend with the anti-Sharia laws um, that different state houses were enacting in the 2010s, uh, which is, again, playing on fear of the other. Uh, and, and this completely fictitious <laughs> fear that somehow Sharia was taking over state laws. I mean, le legislatures, that made no sense. It was never a real threat. But you see this weaponization oftentimes happening during campaigns. And in fact, studies have been uh, done that show that have shown that Islamophobia is always at its highest during a campaign year. Because that's when it's weaponized the most. Not it's it's even lower in the aftermath of an, a, an attack by a Muslim than it is during a campaign year. Um, in terms of the Obama administration and the so-called war on terror, I mean, I completely agree that the a damage that was conducted from the drone war in terms of you know uh, 
the killing of, of innocent civilians and these drone strikes, the droning of weddings, the droning of uh, different family events. And uh, in my mind, I mean, it, it's, it didn't garner nearly as much um, outrage by liberals, by supporters uh, of Obama than it would have if it was a Republican doing it. And I think it goes to sort of the demonization of Muslims abroad and um, the way that imperialism and U.S. actions abroad are kind of justified when it's a Democrat in office versus a Republican. But, you know, unfortunately, he's never really been, again, held accountable for that. When you saw these things happening, when you saw, you know, birtherism happening, when you saw, you know, kind of Donald Trump come down on his escalator in 2016, and, uh, you know, the, the entire liberal establishment had a freak out over uh, the things that he said and the, the, the sort of positions that he was arguing in favor of. Was your reaction kind of like, where have you all been for the last 20 years? It seems like that would be a, a, a fair response. Absolutely. I think, you know, you've seen in my father's own case, you know, from Bill O'Reilly to this local shock jock named Bubba the Love Sponge in in Tampa, very Tampa name, um, to, you know, that right wing newspaper campaign against him. We've, We've seen sort of the mainstreaming of right-wing, Islamophobic, anti-immigrant, um, racist rhetoric. And with Trump, it, you know, it's sort of the logical conclusion of that when it's been tolerated for so long. And, you know, this is something we've said all along is that when you allow these abuses to happen against Muslims, they're going to happen against others, other vulnerable groups. But yeah, I mean, with Trump saying things like Islam hates us, you know, a total and complete shutdown of Muslims, he's, I think, giving a much cruder voice to opinions that I believe have long been held, uh, mostly by the Republican Party, but even within the Democratic Party, you have some of that. So where do you see the state of how, where, where Muslims fit into the American imagination now and how has that transformed because it it does seem to be like the national security state writ large following the so-called pivot to asia under obama is now demonizing you know returning to the the classics of the chinese exclusion act and and the the various immigration acts um seems to be demonizing now um people of east asian descent and and islam is receding um deeper into the recesses of the American imagination, I'm sure to be called again at some point in the future. But I, I was wondering if you could speak to that transformation. Um, how, how have you seen it in your own life? Um, am I mischaracterizing things? How have you seen it in media where you are a professional? I'd love to hear about that. It's a really good question. I, I, I feel like Islam will always be lurking beneath the surface, um, as will the Middle East. But yeah, I mean, you definitely hear uh, much more about, um, you know, Asia, you hear less, even in terms of media coverage, it's really receded with, you know, different journalists now kind of moving out of the Middle East, leaving Afghanistan. It feels like it is receding. In terms of American Muslims, I think, you know, you still have the casualties of the war on terror. These are families that have been destroyed, prisoners that have been forgotten, um, I think some of this disciplining in terms of not being outspoken, not pushing back against the state, um, in some ways, 
feels like a bit of a permanent fixture, but then you have a new generation that's pushing back and sort of rejecting it, a generation which was born after 9-11 and doesn't have the same kind of fear that the previous generation had. And I think they're much more, they're much bolder, they're much more outspoken, and they're much more critical of the leadership that kind of bought into these premises before. And related to that question, obviously, Muslim is a gigantic category, right? <laughs> not, not all Muslims come from the same place. Um, so I'm also interested in that process of Americanization. And I, I have some friends who are um, Muslim. And it's interesting, they were talking about, um, this might not be the perfectly accurate phrase, but almost like the Protestantization, uh, Protestantization of American Muslim practice and the creation of this new thing called American Islam, much much similar to what happened with, with Judaism, right? Like Jews never used to give sermons and now they're sermons because they, they copied Protestant churches. So I would be curious if you, if you could talk about, you know, how is that quote unquote melting pot of the United States coming together to create almost a new category of Muslims shaped in the shadow of this brutal war, both at home and abroad? It's a good question. I don't know that it totally feels like in my wheelhouse, but I think there's a certain exceptionalism when it comes to American Muslims um, in which, you know, they feel like they can speak on behalf of Islam as a, as, as, as a huge category uh, with sort of, without really, I think, considering the unique situation of other Muslims um, in other countries. And I think some of that, some of the same pitfalls of American exceptionalism can apply. I was going to say, you know, you're in this country, it's hard not to become an exceptionalist. I mean, the, this country has so much power. It does have power over what happens in the world. That is true. And then people here speak on behalf of the world. I mean, you saw it most recently with Ukraine, you know, where Americans nominate themselves to be the defenders of peace and freedom worldwide. That's very interesting. Yeah, you see a lot of the same thing within the community, but... I also have some hope of things changing a bit and um, people sort of becoming more willing to resist and, and sort of question the state. To sort of wrap things up, I, I, I'd like to get your thoughts on where the American psyche stands uh, now that we're now that 9-11 could, could walk into a bar and order a, a, a beer legally. Um, I, I think uh, I'm, I'm kind of being flippant about this, but I think Ari Fleischer, I'm sure you know, he used to do his minute-by-minute minute re, rerun of September 11th on Twitter every year. I think he finally didn't do it last year, which uh, marks some kind of, has to mark some kind of bizarre milestone in the healing process. But I'm curious because I see this, you know, the not just the the annual kind of reliving of of that day but the, the, there are many ways in which i think people are still grappling with uh the fear that they felt or the 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 sense of vulnerability that they felt that they never uh, had to face before uh, but on the other hand we do have a, a generation as you say we've got a generation growing up that that was born after that day. And so I'm curious where you feel the country, the United States as a whole stands in its relationship with its Muslim community, but also kind of just in general, kind of adjusting or, or, or rationalizing what happened. I think you still have people who justify the war in Iraq. They justify the war in Afghanistan. They justify a lot of these uh, broader post 9-11 abuses that happened to Muslims uh, in the U.S. 
But I think you have a, a new generation that wasn't necessarily uh, there, that wasn't necessarily swayed by the sort of emotional um, manipulation that followed the fear and hysteria that can actually take a step back and be a lot more critical of U.S. actions. And that can actually acknowledge that the, those who suffered the aftermath of 9-11 included hundreds of thousands of civilians all over the world, the invasion of dozens of countries <laughs> or covert actions in countries, invasion of uh, of Iraq, the occupation of Afghanistan for many years. And uh, what I hope that is that there'll be a reckoning of all of these abuses of the legacy of U.S. actions after 9-11. I'm not holding my breath because I think there's a tendency, you know, as Obama said when he took office, let's just look forward. I don't want to look back. So I think there's a lot of resistance to ac pursuing accountability to righting the wrongs of the past, to pursuing justice for those unjustly detained. Um, I did feel like I left um, the ending of my father's case hanging a bit. I should mention that after six months, he was actually largely acquitted, but his um, persecution continued for many more years until he was finally deported in 2015. Um, and, and what I take from that case is the fact that in a city in which my father had been demonized for many, many, many years, considering the fact that the Department of Justice has a 98% success rate on terrorism cases, um, 10 out of 12 jurors wanted to acquit him, uh, wanted to acquit a Palestinian uh, American and his three Palestinian co-defendants. And that's huge. I mean, that's uh, restores some semblance of hope in, in the system. Well, we're not accustomed to ending on semblances of hope on this podcast, but uh, I think we'll grab the the, the chance to do so here. Uh, Leila Al-Aran, again, uh, thank you so much for coming on the program and, and sharing your story with us. Uh, and um, yeah, we'll, we'll uh, look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.